Welcome to Get Your Book Seen and Sold. I am your host, Claudine Wolk. You can find me at my Substack account, claudinewolk.substack.com. We're talking all about publishing and book marketing. If you have decided that you want to write a book and you're trying to figure out how to publish it, or maybe you've already written a book and you're trying to figure out how to market it, this is the podcast slash Substack for you. Our goal is to give you great tips, by example in some cases, to help you get your book seen and sold. So join us through the newsletter or the podcast today and get your book seen and sold. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star rating. Welcome to Get Your Book Seen and Sold. I'm your host, Claudine Walk. Maureen Petrosky is the author of the brand new book, Wine Club, A Monthly Guide to Swirling, Sipping, and Pairing with Friends. She's also the author of The Cocktail Club, Zero Proof Drinks and More, and the original The Wine Club book. She graduated from Villanova University, the Culinary Institute of America, and is certified by the Master Court of Salmoniers. I'm having a really tough time with this introduction. (laughs) She works as a creative consultant and content creator across the food, drink, and home entertainment spaces. As an entertaining and lifestyle expert, she appears regularly on NBC's Today Show and hosts multiple video classes. She lives in Bucks County, Pennsylvania with her husband, Michael, and twins, Chris and Elliot. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you for having me. Yay! Okay, so you can find Maureen at her website, Maureen Petrosky, P-E-T-R-O-S-K-Y dot com. So congratulations on the release of your new book. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a long time coming, but I'm glad it's here now. So yeah, tell us the story of that, because you were, you were telling me off the air there about how this book, which is titled Wine Club, is the updated version of a book that you had previously published. Yes, my very first book was called The Wine Club, and that was similar concept based on the calendar year. Month by month, I take you through different types of wines or styles of wine and pair them with food. So it's like a book club, but better. It's for you to do at home to learn about wine without all of the fear factors of a giant restaurant list or being in public and not knowing what to order or shopping for something and not knowing what to choose. So this lets you really learn about it in the comfort of your own home with your own friends. And it is so much fun. So the original came out 17, I would say almost 18 years ago now. And over the years, there are dozens and dozens of wine clubs across the country that started from that first wine club book, and they still are going strong. And they email me all the time. And so there have been asking for new chapters and new ideas and how they can keep their wine club fresh. And so I joined with Chronicle, who's my new publisher, and went through and updated the entire book and put new chapters in because the wine world changes over the years. So now there's a rosé chapter, there's a natural wines chapter, um, the white, there's a chapter about alternative white wines and one for alternative red wines. So it kind of encompasses a lot more than the original book did. But one fun thing is that the recipes are a lot easier in this book than the original. <laughs> so you mentioned that I went to the Culinary Institute of America and I am trained as a chef, but at that time when I wrote the first book, I didn't have any kids and I had plenty of time to cook. And now I found that people that want to have a wine club or even a book club want recipes that are delicious and pretty, but easy. They have to be easy. So these are all really fit that mold perfectly. And so all the recipes are new. So if you have the original wine club book, you have all new recipes in here and lots of new knowledge to get to go through with your friends. How nice. That's awesome. Okay. So do do you teach people how to create a wine club? Yes. So the beginning gives you the basics of how to get started, um, gives you a little bit of groundwork to do to prepare yourself, some rules and tips that I found along the way, what works and what doesn't work. And so that's all in there in the very beginning of the book. And then you can roll out. And while it is set on the calendar year, so for instance, you know, January is Cabernet Sauvignon. And if it's not what you want to drink in January, you can skip to the next month. So there are guidelines, but you can take them as you please. And even if you don't want to start a wine club and you just love wine and you want to learn more about it, is it, is it, you can still use the book. It's perfect for that. Um, Claudine, it's like, what I like to say is I packed it with party favors. So there's all these little tips and tricks in there that you can take as you please. If you want to learn about wine, it's a really great conversational 
low threshold to get involved in wine. There is no test taking involved. There is no studying. It's not, I mean, I know you haven't seen a hard copy of it, but it's this adorable little size. It fits right on a bar cart and it just, it's supposed to be fun and wine should be fun. It shouldn't be scary. It shouldn't be stressful. And so if you want to learn a little bit, you can, if you want to have a little bit more fun and just be drinking it, you can too. But the real goal is to find out what you like so that you know what you want to drink when you go out to dinner or in a wine shop and or what you want to give as a gift. So that's really the empowerment part of it is finding out what you like. There are no right and wrong about drinking wine. Nice. Is it is it illustrated? It is. And my illustrator is so amazing. Her name's Liv Lee and she is from Australia and she just brought it to life. Like there's just some really cute I'm gonna show you, but your oh, wow. listeners okay. can't see it. But right. there's just some really fun um illustrations throughout the whole book even some of the food parts like she illustrated for me but bright bold saturated colors I love her work I actually came about her she was doing prints for some dresses that were in anthropology and I just fell in love with her work and she had never done a book before previously she's done she hand painted all of the pieces that are in the book so they have kind of this really natural brushstroke look to them and that's because every piece she sent me she was painting and then we were going back and forth about like how it should look but I just wanted her to make it fun you know it just it's a different feel than most wine books you'll see that's and and how does one meet someone who works to design things in anthropology (laughs) to ask them to illustrate their book it is the power of social media okay honestly it's you know following people and liking their work and you know sending messages and then my publisher helped find, you know, that person and then we connected and it was just really a match made in heaven. Yeah, I, I want to put a tack in that, but I, I'll ask you about this later. I love that, that you are sharing an example of how you partnered with your publisher. Because a lot of times I think authors, especially new authors, think that, you know, it, it's they're going to they're going to submit and then the authors or the publishers going to edit and then you know that's as much as they're going to get together but you really can partner with them on all facets of book production and marketing right definitely you know it's a it is a tricky relationship because this is my fourth book and this is my fourth publisher so i have a lot of experience with different houses and they all do work a little bit differently so My first book, like you said, you don't know how much say you're going to have, even with the cover, even with, you know, what it's going to look like. I had a vision in my mind, but I wasn't confident enough to ask for the things that I wanted um, the way that I saw it. I was afraid that I would be, you know, a diva or difficult to work with. But what I have found over the years, like you said, you can have a really good symbiotic relationship with your publishing house and you shouldn't be afraid to ask for what you want. There is a way to do it professionally without being, you know, labeled difficult to work with, but you should, this is something that you're creating and it's your vision and it is very personal. And the one that's the most personal too is the writer. So they should be the one saying where they see it going. And hopefully if you're lucky, you will find yourself in a place like I did this time with Chronicle with a team that is open to those ideas and excited about them because you have to remember you're words are the beginning of it, but you want people to find those words. And so what it looks like in the end and how it's packaged and marketed, it's just crucial to them finding what you're trying to say in the first place. Well said, well said. The creativity that you have as a writer can translate into the creativity in the book production and and yours did as well. And I think it only benefits the publisher to take advantage of that. Definitely. And honestly, The more work you do, they like it. It's the less work they have to do. So, you know, if you can do that work ahead of time and give it to them, they appreciate that. They appreciate, you know, knowing that they don't have to do the guesswork in the end. Right, right. And we're not talking about having your, and I, this is, I always say your Aunt Tilly, um, who's not a professional illustrator, do the illustrations in your book. I mean, this is, you know, bringing ideas together and, and finding common ground. So there is a little back and forth. Definitely. And when you're working in the space, you know, there's so many different genres of books, but I work in lifestyle. So, you know, is it going to be photography or is it going to be illustration? And it just, again, it's a different feel and vibe and how you want that book to 
to be enjoyed and consumed. And so I've done both. I've done photography and I've worked with artwork artists also. And I've learned a lot from them along the way also about layout and design and how a book is, how what I think might work might not work. So I would also say to any writers just to be open-minded to learning through the process also. Don't get so caught up. I can't tell you. I, my husband laughs at me, but there every cover I've ever done, I don't like in the end. I don't like it. Why don't I like it? But then I lo- learned to love it. And I have to trust that the marketing team knows really what's best in the end. And, and it will work better in different ways. And now we have online ordering. You know, people are looking at a thumbnail. They're not always looking at a hard copy in a bookstore. And so, um, you know, you have to look at things completely differently. And that's when you trust the professionals in those different parts of the process. Um, I've learned to give a little that way, even though it's difficult as a writer um, to not love your cover. But like I said, over the years, I've trusted them. And I've seen the success in the books. And I know that that's partly because of the work that they put into it and the research and and you have to trust a little bit, even if you don't love it. Right. But it, it is gorgeous. And I will have that. Uh, send me the if you send me the, the book cover, uh, I'll make sure, oh, sure that that's that's what shows up on the podcast description. And um, that'll be everyone will get a chance to look at it. Plus, of course, I'll have the link to your book. Very exciting. Okay, so back to wine. You know, wine is something that um, everybody loves. And I'm going to admit something here that I don't like to admit, but I'm going to admit it for the, you know, for the discussion, the importance of the discussion. So I used to live in um, Northern California. Um, okay. My husband got <laughs> transferred. So I was a Pennsylvania girl. And then I went out, out to California and everyone out there was so nice. I was, we were about 40 minutes outside San Francisco. And I'm sure you all know that that wine is a very big deal to folks in California, especially those so close to Napa Valley. And um, I was completely clueless. And I remember the first, and like I said, so nice. We didn't know a soul, and they were so inviting. You know, you, you find that on the East Coast. Right. It's like, I have enough friends, and I have my family. And, you know, but out there, everybody seems to be a transplant, and they're so, you know, welcoming. So we were invited to parties and things. And um, the first one I went to, I had, you know, a glass of red wine, and I I put an ice cube in it. <laughs> And the people had a heart attack. It was like, oh, I didn't know that that was the wrong thing to do. I've since learned that, you know, you're changing all the dynamics of the wine when you do such a thing. But as you get better at it and and you, you drink more of it, you really can start to distinguish the differences. I'm wondering how that happened for you that you became an expert. So... It's trial and error. I think back to, you know, my college days and I laughed that I made a living out of drinking because I did, frankly, (laughs) but it's all about practice. Your parents must be so proud. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They are very proud. They're very proud. But this is um, when you, there's a couple of things I want to talk about the ice cube and the wine. So let's put a pin in that. And then also how you become an expert. So I don't love to call myself an expert. I am certified through the Court of Master Sommeliers, which is, you know, one of the governing schools of wine in the country, in the world. There's, there's several, you can have uh, certifications and diplomas from all different levels of wine education and institutes. I think that what makes me not an expert, but gives me some street cred is that I've spent a lot of time doing it. And like you said, the more you did it, the more you understood the differences. And that's really the only way to do it is to drink it. You have to drink the wine. You have to taste it. And I'm not saying guzzle it like the college days. I'm talking about tasting it, evaluating it and spitting it out. And that's another thing that we talk about in wine club is I talk to you about how to taste wine like the pros do. You know, you don't find what you love by drinking full glasses after, you know, over and over and over. You find it by sipping, taking a minute, feeling it in your mouth, smelling it, looking at it, swallowing, see what it feels like in your mouth afterwards. That's that finish we talk about. Is it something you like? Is it pleasing to you? Is it something that's making your mouth pucker and you don't like it? Or do you like that pucker? It's really being in tune with yourself. And, it's you know, there are all of these movements now about mindfulness and, you know, being where you're at. And with wine, that's really important. It's to be mindful about what you're drinking and pay attention so that you find out what you like. 
Now that brings me back to that ice cube. <laughs> if you like that ice cube in there, I will never be the one to say, ah, don't do that. Now, if you're with a winemaker who's working on, you know, like our books are our babies, their wine are their babies. So they've put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into their making of their wine. And they do it for a specific reason. They want it to be a specific way. But at the end of the day, if you want to put an ice cube in your wine, then put an ice cube in your wine if that's the way you like it better. That's my take. Some people would flinch at that, but I kind of approach the wine world in a little bit of a different perspective because I want my friends to drink wine with me. That's my ultimate goal. My ultimate goal isn't to make the most prestigious red wine in the world. It's so that you'll have a glass with me and we can have a little bit of fun along the way. As a lifestyle expert, it's more important to me that you're happy with your wine. So if that's with an ice cube in it, then that's what's more important to me um, than the wine. But I have a lot of winemaker friends. They would probably want to <laughs> kill me. But but it is there is a way around that also. You can make ice cubes out of wine. Mm. And so if you like your red a little chilled, first of all, you can throw it in the fridge. There's no uh, red wines. When we talk about room temperature, room temperature, when red wines were being made in France at the turn of the century, was a lot colder than room temperature is now. So drinking a red wine that's a little chilled is usually how it should start. It's a little chill on it. So if you store your red wine just on your countertop or in a you know a cabinet or cupboard, throw it in the fridge for about 20 minutes before you open it. Gives it a little bit of a chill. And then it also lets you enjoy that, what they call opening up of wine as it changes, as the temperature changes, as it's in, in your glass. Um, so that's a nice thing to do. But also you can make ice cubes out of wine, like I said, and that doesn't, when those ice cubes then start to melt, it's not going to be as much water content. There's always water in wine. Wine is made with water, but it's going to be this actual wine that you're drinking. So that's one way around it. Got it. And those kinds of tips are in your book? All throughout the book. Those are those party favorites I mentioned. They're all in there. Nice. Okay. So you mentioned something just there, and I'm going to see if my terminology is correct. But when you do pour some wine and you let it sit, is that it called breathing? And why is breathing, yeah. letting your wine breathe? Why is that important? So your wine will definitely change once it comes out of the bottle. And it's, you know, I don't want to be too scientific about it, but essentially it's being exposed to air and the elements and it's changing the composition of the wine. So the alcohol is blow, you know, blowing off or that breathing. So when you first smell a glass of wine that you pour, you might only smell the alcohol. It's right there. It's strong. But as you swirl it and move it around and it's exposed to oxygen, those alcohol fumes breathe. They blow off. And then you get to start to smell some of the fruits and some of the spices that might be in a wine or the terroir, what we talk about, which is, you know, the earthiness or where it comes from. It's, you know, it's birthplace where the grapes are grown. So it's, it's important, especially for big red wines. Um, to breathe. And that's why when you see someone decant a wine to those pretty crystal decanters, or they are swirling a glass of wine, the purpose of all of that, or even a wine, um, professional wine taster, they're swishing it in their mouth, that's exposing it to more oxygen. And that's changing the wine, it's letting it open up, and then you can see all the fun different parts about it. Wow, I think I need to have you at a party to, you know, actually explain all this to people. I don't know yeah, that I, I do, do that too. Justice. I do that too, Claudine. You do? I am an entrepreneur. Ooh, yeah. cool. <laughs> I do parties. I do. Um, I do a lot of corporate events where I come in. You know, a lot of the big companies, especially where we live in this part of the country, there's, you know, pharma and finance, and um, every year they have parties for their people that work in their companies, whether it's a Christmas party or it's you know, team builders, I'll come in and work with them. And wine is a, a really great connector and a really fun way to, you know, instead of these trust falls, it's, you know, it's like you're trusting your wine, what you're sipping. We do blind tastings. It's really a lot of fun and it is educational. So it's, you know, it's empowering to learn a little bit, but have a little bit of fun too. Yeah, it absolutely is. That's Maureen Petrosky dot com for your next party p-e-t-r-o-s-k-y okay so you mentioned that you also have recipes does food change the taste of wine it definitely does and there are some matches that are just made in heaven you know 
when you hear red wine with red meat and white wine with fish or chicken, I mean, those are just some really basic elements, but there can be crossover in every category. So again, I want to encourage you to do some tastings on your own and, you know, really explore and experiment. But in each chapter, so for instance, I mentioned Cabernet Sauvignon, and that's our first chapter. There are recipes that I think go well with the different Cabernets. So the way that the book is set up, for January, it's Cabernet Sauvignon. So we talk about Cabernet Sauvignon and how it exists all around the world. And then I recommend a few bottles from different areas, different price points. I recommend that you taste them all blind, which means we cover the bottles in foil or in paper bags. And they're numbered. So this is, again, making you trust yourself and see which one you do like. Wine can be very, um, you can be very influenced by your neighbor. If someone loves it and they're very outspoken, then you think, oh, I should love this too. But you might not actually. So, uh, And also when people see a label or a price tag, they sometimes give it more accolades than you actually would if you didn't know what you were tasting. So we start like that. That's how you taste the wine. And then after you do the tasting, you go, the food is there. It's always important to have a little food when you're drinking, even if you're spitting, especially if you don't drink often, because you want to make sure that you're not getting too tipsy before you're understanding the wine. You can always go back and have a big glass of any of the wines you like, but I encourage you to taste them all first, which means a small one to two ounce pour, and then spit also if you don't um, want to consume all that wine. But so for instance, in January, some of the recipes are baked brie with balsamic cherries and sage. And then you think about like how that balsamic, which sounds like weird, you'd put vinegar with wine, but how it really plays with the red wine. So it's fun. And then that, that brie, which is a really rich and creamy cheese, this, these wines stand up to that. And then there's also totally different things like the Japanese barbecue beef skewers. So again, we've got beef, but then we've got these different flavor elements that really work well. And above each recipe is a little note as to why I chose it to go with those wines. Um, and then really simple ones like three ingredient dark chocolate mousse with coffee whip and pretzels. I mean, it's so delicious. It's so easy to do, but that coffee is an element that sometimes you find in Cabernet. Um, dark chocolate is a f- aroma that often you find in a Cabernet Sauvignon. And then that salty pretzel just makes it delicious and all works together. So when you're drinking and eating together, I always say like have a sip of the wine first, then taste the food, then have another sip of the wine. So you kind of bookend it with the wine, whatever you're tasting and see how you like it. And these are pairings that I like. I hope that you'll enjoy them. But again, you'll find your favorites along the way. Yeah, what a unique combination that you you know everything about wines. I'm not saying that word again that begins with an S. I'm just not going to do it. And that you also are a chef. I mean, wow, cool. And because and we do eat when we drink wine. So it does make sense that the the taste of the wine would change with the food that you're eating. Right. And and the ways that the, that you do that is there's three ways to pair food and wine. It's complementing the food. So for instance, we've got that you know, rich Cabernet Sauvignon and a rich piece of red meat. Um, Contrasting, which would be maybe something creamier, and then you have a glass of champagne, which cuts through the creaminess. And then bridging, which is using the wine you're drinking in what you're eating. So for instance, making, or if you're drinking a Syrah and you make a red wine sauce, you use that same Syrah. So there's the bridging. So those are the three kind of general ways that you think about pairing food and wine. But again, you'll find some really weird ones that work along the way, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. So it's just, it can be a lot of fun. It's an adventure. Yep. Are there wines that should be, um, that you should drink without food? I think that any wine you can drink without food. Every wine should be able to stand on its own. Okay. If it pairs well with food, that's just an added bonus. Um, you talked about living in Northern California and, you know, there is this California cuisine that goes along with the California wines. And it's the same as when you travel to Italy or Spain or France and you're eating the local food with the local wine. And there's just this magic that works there. It doesn't have to be something that you overthink. Just if, if you're buying an Italian wine, maybe buy an Italian cheese, you know, from the same area. Mm. There's a reason why those things exist. They they work really well together. I know it doesn't always taste the same once you're home and you're not in Italy or Spain, <laughs> but you can kind of recreate some of that magic. Absolutely. Oh, okay. So tell me about, um, there's a phenomenon going on where, you know, wines are 
are being advertised more. Uh, for example, Kim Crawford, um, her wine is being advertised. The uh, Sauvignon Blanc has gotten popular, especially the New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. And um, there there are certain, um, I have, I've heard, this is so bad, I've heard that being referred to as headache juice. Headache, all uh, wine or just? No, just that one. I mean, certain brands, let's say. Okay. So how can um, one stay away from, I'm going to get sued, so I'll probably cut that out, but um, <laughs> I'll just say the headache juice wines. How can you stay away from wines that really aren't good for you? So everyone has a different reaction to wine. And funny thing, Kim Crawford is a man, not a woman. Is that right? Um, yeah, a lot of people don't know that. So Kim is a guy who makes really delicious Sauvignon Blanc. There are a lot of wines that we import that come with a lot of preservatives or sulfites. And that's just part and parcel of shipping and distributing wine. So if you're having a wine in a vineyard in, and this goes both ways, when our wines are shipped overseas also, they can be a little bit different. So they have to be stabilized so that they can handle, you know, temperature fluctuations and shipping and distribution. You don't know how long something's going to be held in a warehouse or in a truck. So definitely some things change along the way. What I find is that people have different reactions to different wines, and they might think it's one in particular producer that's causing it, or like you talked about headache wines, some people say, you know, cheap wines have, you know, a worse effect on them. Some people just have a response to red wine. You know, they can get a stuffy nose and a headache from a red wine from the tannins. Every single person is different. Not everything applies to everyone along the way. Headache wines is usually when the sugar content is too high. So when you think about a hangover, because you've had so much sugar, you know, the alcohol is the sugar in there and then you're crashing from it. And so for people that are having that kind of response, I would say to look for more um, natural wines, wines that specifically promote themselves as not having any sugar added to them. Um, sugar is a preservative, you know, you think about, you know, mm. when people were shipping things overseas and sugar is a preservative, if you put strawberries in sugar, you're going to have jam and it's going to last a really long time. Mm. Added sugar, right? Not, wow. it's not, it's natural sugars. Just think about adding sugar to something. It is a preservative. Whereas if you didn't add any extra sugar, it wouldn't last as long. So one, it might cost a little bit more. Too, you might not see as much of it like you do with these bulk wines that are coming into the States. And then three, you might not enjoy it as much, but typically the price point is good. So that's why, that's how it can exist. It's a little bit more complicated than just saying, you know, they're all, so many big wines are the ones that are headache wines, but it definitely happens. I would just say for yourself, if you find that those wines are giving you that type of reaction, try something different. There's right. so much out there. Yep. And how about uh, taste your tasting your tastes changing over the years? I I used to love um, a New Zealand Sauv Blanc, and now I I tend to go for more dry and the Sancerre um, and mm-hmm. the Chablis. Like anything, the drier the better. It seems, and I seem to do better yeah. with them. I think it's funny that you said that our tastes do change over the years. I mean, they just naturally do. So something you love, love, love. I used to, same thing. I drank a ton of Sauvignon Blanc, especially when it was getting popular and we were getting more of them. Um, the fun, really citrusy summer wine. And then I just found them to be falling a little flat and I wanted something with a little more body, a little richer. Mm-hmm. I also think that's organically your taste buds changing. So people start with one thing and then they move on to the next. And that's just how I think it naturally occurs organically. You, you have a, you know, a rum and Coke and then you move on. And then before you know it, you're drinking a Manhattan. So, you know, you have to start somewhere and those wines are really easy to drink. Whereas a Sancerre or Chablis might be a little bit more um, complex and you weren't into it at first, but now you have a level of understanding of wine and then you start to trust your palate and what you're, you're craving and what you're wanting. And I would probably think your taste will change even again. Yeah. So there really is something to that. You know, when people say, um, oh, this is just this is not a good wine. I don't like this. And then they'll taste something else and be like, OK, there it is. This is perfect. There is yeah. something to that. They're not full of soup. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just like anything else in life. You know, we look at 
the partners we pick to, you know, spend our lives with. That might not be someone else's cup of tea, but it's yours. So there is a wine out there for everyone. So if you think you don't like wine and you're not a wine drinker, I would say give it another shot. I love it. Oh, thank you so much for sharing all that. Uh, what else do I want to ask you? Oh, chocolate and wine. Just real quick. You mentioned desserts. You have desserts that yeah. go with it. What is it about chocolate, white chocolate, dark chocolate, milk chocolate? How different they taste with wine? Definitely. Well, so that's also fat content. So there's cocoa butter. So, ah. you know, a dark chocolate has less fat content in it. It's usually a little more bitter, um, whereas milk chocolate has more milk fats in it. And so it's creamier and richer. So you're talking about a bitter flavor versus a creamy, uh, sweeter flavor and how that works with your wine. So again, those sugar levels that are in there and bitterness, you can, you can smell cocoa powder in some red wines. Um, Mm. I don't know why certain aromas, I don't know the science behind that, like why a grape can also smell like chocolate or why it can smell like a cigar after it's gone through the bottling and um, storage process. I don't know the science behind it, but that is what one of the most fun things about wine is finding all those layers of aroma that you like. And then, like you said, the differences in chocolate are dramatic. Have you ever done a chocolate tasting? I have, I have. With wine, you mean, or just chocolate? Or just with chocolate. No, I don't think I have. Chocolate alone. Yeah. So that is something that's also really interesting to do to understand just the differences in chocolate. I encourage you for your next red wine tasting, just get a variety of chocolates. Get milk, dark, bittersweet. You can even get chocolate chips, you know, the semi sweet. Taste them on their own and then taste them with wine. It's really interesting to see the differences. And also, you might think, oh, I like dark chocolate. But then you taste that milk chocolate with that wine, and then there's just some magic that happens. So with chocolate, it can be really fascinating to see the differences. And I've spent some time with chocolatiers. They spend a lot of time on not just what the chocolate looks like, the sheen on the chocolate, but also how it cracks in your mouth and how it feels in your mouth. So dark chocolate isn't as creamy. That's going to have a crack to it. That's going to be different than a milk chocolate. And it's really fascinating all foods, if you just, again, take a minute, be mindful, stay where you are, instead of just sticking it in your mouth or drinking something really quickly, pay attention to what you're putting into your body and what you're putting into your mouth and take a moment to enjoy it. You'll see that there's so much more to food and drink than most people really understand or appreciate. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you assigning me that project. I'm really <laughs> going to enjoy that, Maureen. Thank I think you, you are. Yeah. Um, uh, one other question with the with the wine tasting. I remember being in Napa. Now everybody wanted to come and see us and go to Napa, so I was there like seven times. Uh, and it's of Cabernet Sauvignon. There was a, there's this woman who took us around at Mandavi um, Winery. That was one of the ones that was really fun to do. And Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Sauvignon. And um, they would say when we were in the wine tasting room, and I, I would just watch people, and then they would t- turn their their glass, and they would say, "Oh, it's very leggy." What the heck does leggy mean? I My whole life, I don't know what leggy means. So when you swirl a wine and you see how it attaches to the side of the glass and drips back into the glass, a very light-bodied wine like a Sauvignon Blanc isn't going to have legs. It shouldn't, actually. Um, whereas something like a Cabernet Sauvignon will have legs. So that's the viscosity of a wine. And so the viscosity changes by the alcohol level. So typically a higher alcohol wine is more viscous and will have thicker legs that will attach to the side of the glass and take longer to drift back down into the bowl of the glass. Red wines tend to typically be higher in alcohol than white wines. They just do. Yep. Uh, not nece- not always. There are some very high alcoholic white wines as well. But for instance, that Sauvignon Blanc versus a Cabernet Sauvignon, you're going to have a much more viscous or leggy glass of wine with the red than you would with the white. See how much you're learning, audience? You're going to be able to do all this stuff when you're out (laughs) and about. I love it. We we should have had a tasting in front of us. I know. We should have. Next time. Next time. Okay, cool. All right. So let's talk about the book itself. So it is available for sale. It's The title is Wine Club, A Monthly Guide to Swirling, Sipping, and Pairing with Friends. And you can find that, I imagine, wherever books are sold. Yes. It's everywhere. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local bookstore can get them also. Fantastic. And you mentioned earlier that this was a book that you had already 
written about 17 years ago and that you updated. And just from a publishing standpoint, how common is that, that a book gets re, you know, updated and published? You know, I, I actually don't know. And I, when I was pitching the second book, I thought it would have a totally different title. The concept that I pitched, which is what this book is, is totally different. Not, not totally different. The concept is similar, but the content is totally different than the first book. The first book was very successful. Of all my books, the Wine Club was the most successful of them. And I think that, again, leaning on the pros who are in marketing at Chronicle to say that it should stay the same name um, was something I was surprised about, but we'll see how it does. I don't know how common it is to do a rewrite of a book, but for something like this, and I kind of think about like textbooks, they're always being updated, you know, the materials change. So for instance, the, the wines that I wrote about in the first wine club, some of the wines that were popular at that time are not as popular now. So, and rosé wasn't even really on anyone's radar a little bit, but not as much as it popularity as it has now to warrant an entire chapter that people want to learn more about it. So I don't know how common that is. That's a really good question. But I think it's important, especially in these types of books, food and drink change all the time. Trends change all the time. Consumer demand and interest is changing. So I wanted to meet that need for my wine clubbers and give them some fun new stuff to learn about. Yeah, and it's very approachable too. How important is that to to write a book that's practical, especially one that's community based? The only books that I write are approachable because it's not interesting otherwise. I don't I don't think most people want to be a wine expert. I think most people want to enjoy wine. So for me, that's who I'm writing for are the people that want to know enough to feel confident to go out there. And honestly, I am a sommelier, so I What's in here is just packaged a little differently than a textbook or a formal uh, educational book. It's all in here, but in just a little different way. So it's super important to me because I think that the majority of people don't want or are not interested in that part of it. They want to learn about wine so that they know how it's going to fit into their life. Right. And you mentioned Chronicle Books is your publisher and that you pitched. Did you pitch directly to them or did you pitch through an agent? So I have an agent on this book. I have always worked with an agent on all of my books. The This editor of this book, I worked on at a different publishing house with one of my other books. And I kind of followed her career and I wanted to work with her again. Nice. And so I pitched her first. And full transparency for other writers, the offer that came back to me was too low. And so I said, I'm going to take it elsewhere. So I did go to her first. Uh, that was my first choice. And then when they knew I was going to take it elsewhere, they came back with a better offer. So there is a way even on that very beginning part of it. Um, and having an agent, it's just having someone in your court that understands all of the nuances of that part, well, of a lot of parts of publishing that I didn't want to go out alone. I found myself, I, over the years, I've done a lot of projects where I don't have representation And it hasn't always been smooth sailing, but I'd rather have someone fight those little battles for me. But for instance, in a case like that, when you're negotiating or you're looking for um, a little more money or if you're looking for different contract terms, it's great to have an agent to work with. Was it hard to find an agent? Yeah. Was it hard to find an agent? Um, This is, I have, this is my second agent. My first agent I think was harder to find than my second agent. Once I published my first book, it was easier to find an agent. So in the beginning, when I go, when I think about it, if you're, if you have listeners who are writers that are starting off now and looking for an agent, it was definitely difficult and took some time. So even though I had a lot of ideas and things written for my first book, it took me almost a year to get an agent. And that was like really working on it, really doing the research to find who represented the type of book that I wanted to write and just even trying to get a meeting or an email to be responded to. It is hard work. And if you find the right space, if you really do your research upfront and identify those few people that you think should be the ones representing you, that's what takes the longest, I think. And then just be 
persistent and consistent. Don't send an email, you know, every single week and then fall off the face of the earth for six months. You know, don't follow them on Instagram and DM them without really having something to bring to them. So if you're at the point where you think you should have an agent, you should also be at the point where you have almost an entire book proposal written already, not just an elevator pitch, because an agent needs to see what you're going to be presenting. Obviously, that body of work will change a million times over before it gets sold or printed. But to go to an eight to find an agent, you have to have, I would say, at least one chapter, a table of contents or what that book's going to look like from beginning to end. You also need to do a little bit of work on what your platform is, whether that is, you know, you have a podcast or you have, you work at a bookstore or if you're a cookbook writer and you have a restaurant, whatever your platform is, your entire marketing plan has to be, you know, slightly sketched out so that they know why you are the person to write the book. It's not enough to just have a good idea. They also want to know about the author and who that person is that's going to be the one writing the book, especially for first-time authors. Such great advice. Uh, the publishing industry has changed so much that you there are only a few publishers out there, really, right? So many of them have, have gotten together and consolidated. So the right. publishers out there that will accept a manuscript without an agent are fewer and fewer. So finding an agent Definitely. is very, very important. And I like the fact that you brought up that you had more than one agent in your career. We had a, a local author, uh, Kelly Simmons, who writes um, thriller novels, and she she's had several agents as well. And um, so that's a very common thing and important to know. Uh, also that you reached out to people you already knew. I call that shake your tree. When you're, you know, you, you have this additional book that you want to write and, and, and you've got this great idea and you went to somebody that you knew. And sometimes that's like the most basic thing, but a lot of people skip it. I, yeah. Yeah. And honestly, you never know where someone's going to end up. For as many publishers that I've worked with, my editor that I just worked with, she's been at as many agencies. So she's been at as many publishing yes. houses. So I've had four publishers. She's been at five publishing houses. Right. Like you said, it changes. They consolidate or they close their doors. My very first publisher doesn't even exist anymore. Um, it was Meredith Corporation who owns a ton of magazines and they owned a book publishing arm at the time. They owned TV stations. You know, you know them from Better Homes and Gardens and Ladies Home Journal. They had a book publishing division. They just closed their doors. So some just go away. And so having different publishing houses it might sound like I can't hold down my, my publishing house, <laughs> no, but not at all. frankly, they have, it's not because of me. It's because of how, like you said, it has changed so dramatically. And I have found that you never know where someone's going to land. So when you say, go back, shake your tray, look at where you know, they might end up. Keep your friends close, keep your contacts, especially people that you like to work with, that you work well with you know, stay in touch with them. You never know. They might not be an agent anymore or they might not be a publishing house anymore, but they might know somebody who is, who would be good to work with you. So, Yep, absolutely. So tell, I want to put you on the spot here and ask you what's, and you're right in the throes of book marketing. Obviously you're doing a podcast and you're promoting your book, which is exactly yeah. what you need to be doing. What do you, what do you find is the hardest part of book promotion? Um, it's just another full-time job, honestly. So you have to know that it requires so much time. And again, this was my fourth one. And even though I said, I'm going to be so prepared this time when I'm ready for the marketing, and I did a lot of the, the work ahead of time with the outreach, it's now it's the follow-up. And the hardest part is really, even if you have, I have a great publishing house and they have a, a marketing team, you have to be prepared and know that you have to do it on your own. So Add that to your to-do list. And it doesn't come naturally to most people. I have a lot of great contacts in the media and I still have to, it's just a lot of work. It's a lot of time. And so it can feel discouraging, um, but then you get a win like this. We're doing a podcast and it's fun and you get invigorated again and you want to talk about your project again. So just remember that it's going to be hard work. The hardest part usually for a writer is not writing the book. The hardest part is usually marketing the book. And so for me, another difficult element is social media. I struggle with social media just because you have to do it so much and so put so much out there. I feel like I'm badgering people, although I know 
like logically I know that's not what's happening, but personally I feel like this is unnecessary. So it's, it's a push and pull constantly of what you know in your gut and what you feel in your gut, but what you know in your head, you have to do it. You have to do the social media. And so that part I don't love. Yeah. And these days, publishers are are doing less and less of it because they're watching their costs, too. So you brought that up in terms of querying uh, an agent or a publisher about a particular book that you have to add what you offer, how you plan to market your book. So the more we get out about the book marketing, the the better. Tell us just just for a um, frame of reference. Tell me about the timeline. And because this is another thing a lot of writers don't understand. For you, you were with a traditional publisher. What was the timeline from the time you brought the idea to them to the book being published? So I'm a little different than most writers because I'm a really fast writer. And I don't like toot my horn about a lot of things, but I can <laughs> I can be very singularly focused when I'm writing. Um, and I like to do it fast. I would say traditionally, it's two years long. So people like minimum. And it all depends, again, on what genre of book you're writing and what you're working on. In my space, it's two years, you sell an idea, or you sell a, a manuscript, you have to recipe test and work on the recipes, which is a very specific skill set that takes a long period of time. And that requires not just you working on the well, everyone does it differently. I work on my recipes, And then I put them out there to people I know who will test them for me. So we can troubleshoot a lot of things that I might think is you would all know, but you might not. Again, that's when you come as a professionally trained chef, you have knowledge that most readers don't know. So I have to then put my, I like to put my recipes out there then to people who I know who are not even cooks. They don't like to cook and see how it works. So that is a timeline. The editing process is, often up to your publisher how long that takes. They'll put you on a schedule and then you get put into that calendar and then that's how you work. They wanted to, when I, this book, they wanted to put out next year and I pushed for it to be out this year. And so I had to hit all these other deadlines that were a year earlier than they wanted. So for me, I can't even remember, but to write my books, I can do them in like six weeks. I can just head down and be done with them where some people take some two years to write them. Um, so that's six weeks of my work and then editing back and forth, which is a couple more months. Um, but again, I'm not a traditional writer like that. And my third book, zero proof drinks, the publisher actually reached out to me because they knew I was a fast writer and they needed something else for their spring catalog. And I had a few ideas I pitched. And so that's how that one came to be. I wasn't even looking to sell a book at that moment but they knew i could write something quickly because something another title they were working on fell through and that's another whole part of the business is yes. you know what their spring catalog and their summer catalog and what they're what they're putting out and how much they want to put into the market so i would say expect two years the process everyone's different and some of these publishing houses are cranking them out faster than that especially depending on how much work you've done prior to bringing it to them how how ready it really is. Right. Yeah, I bring it up because I think because there are so many different ways to self-publish these days, Mm -hmm. folks think, well, I I can just get it out there in three months. And the longer timelines allow you to get some pre-publication work done, to get some author platform established, you know, all of those things. Yes, so important. And obviously publishers, traditional publishers, make sure they embed that in the timeline. Yes. And I think that, like you said, a lot of traditional publishers are doing less of that work. And so you have to do more of that work. So having that leeway does allow you to do that. The difficult part, the the most difficult part I find as a writer is financially, the amount of time you're going to put into the project and realizing how much money you may or may not make at the end of it. So um, there's different ways to, you know, when you work with a traditional publishing house, do you take an advance or do you, you know, work off of royalties on the back end? And what are you most comfortable with doing that? If you're publishing it on your own, how much you're going to invest in it, you know, across the board, you have to give yourself a budget. It could take, it will take as much money as you will throw at it to 
promote a book. So absolutely. Yeah. I like to try to do as much earned media as I can, as opposed to paid media, because there is so much out there like this, like this podcast we're doing together. Every place has an audience. And even if it's just a handful of people, they could be your handful of people. So you have to put the time in. Right. And not to mention it's evergreen, you know, from a very, you know, strategy strategy standpoint, I could give you the audio. You could ask the podcast host to give you the audio and you can use it wherever you want, or you could take snippets of it or however you want to work it. So it really, it really can spread to a whole bunch of different promotions for you. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. All right. Last question. So tell me about what your next project is. And you're like, oh, don't even ask me. <laughs> I know a lot of authors don't like that question, but I bet you have something on your mind. I do a lot of different projects all at the same time. So I feel like right now I've been in a real whirlwind because my two children, my twins just graduated high school. And so we're they are going off to college. So my next project is <laughs> getting these two 18-year-old boys to where they need to be in their life. Um, And one of them is headed over to Dublin. He'll be studying at Trinity. So I'm going to be taking him and getting him settled in Ireland. And that will be really fun. And the other one is headed out to Pitt. So I'm taking him to Pittsburgh. So I've got two different moves ahead of me. And then as far as work goes, I really am buckling down right now on this marketing of this book. So my foreseeable future is following up with media hopefully in the fall is when I'm going to do just like you some book signings, but I have to wait till the fall because I'm just spread a little too thin right now um, on that. And then I do work as a consultant for different brands and I create content for different brands and I have some clients already that I work with and I'll just be maintaining those moving forward into the future. And then, you know, we talked a little bit about a side business that I've started doing just by default is a little bit of what we've talked about today already is really mentoring and working with writers on how to take their project from start to finish. And I do a lot of that one-on-one coaching and I hope to continue to grow that because I feel like, I mean, you know it, everyone has a book in them and everybody wants to write something and they just don't know where to start. And if they have it, they don't know how to get it out there. And so like you, I'm working with a lot of different writers to help them really do that. I love writing books, but if nobody reads them, what's the point? So I want to help other writers to do the same thing. Oh, that sounds wonderful. And we thank you for being with us. Um, Hopefully you'll come back. We'll put all the information in the show notes about where to find you and your book. We've been speaking with Maureen Petrosky. She is the author of the brand new book, Wine Club, a monthly guide to swirling, sipping, and pairing with friends. You can find that wherever books are sold. And she can be found at her website, MaureenPetrosky.com. Anywhere else where you like to send people to find you? That's all great. Everything on social media is just at Maureen Petrosky. So you can find me across all the platforms. Even though I don't love doing it, I'll be there for you. (laughs) Well, we appreciate your honesty and all your great tips. Thanks so much, (laughs) Maureen, for being with us. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And you are listening to Get Your Book Seen and Sold. You have been listening to Get Your Book Seen and Sold with Claudine Wolk. Thanks for listening, and remember to share and subscribe to my Substack, Get Your Book Seen and Sold, at claudinewalk.substack.com. With paid subscriptions, some less than $5 a month, you will have access to all of my resource-filled posts and podcasts, plus a fill-in-the-blank book marketing plan that you can download. At the highest subscription level, you will also get a 30-minute consult with me. When you are ready to make some decisions about your book, subscribe today and let's come up with a plan.